You're listening to Post Perspectives Meet the Artist podcast, sponsored by Puget Systems. Hi, I'm Randy Altman from Post Perspective, and welcome to this month's episode of Meet the Artist. Join me for a conversation with colorist Jill Bogdanovich from Company 3. You know her from her work on many high-profile projects, including Joker, Thor Love and Thunder, and most recently, the latest installment of the John Wick franchise, John Wick Chapter 4. Enjoy. So we're here with Company 3's Jill Bogdanovich. Jill, welcome. Thank you very much for, for joining our podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So we've, we've spoken over the years many times about different projects that you've been on. We're going to touch on some projects for this, but really I just wanted to talk about your history. Um, now, I know that you come from a family of people that love color and color science. So why don't we just start at the beginning? So your dad, why don't you tell people who your dad is and what he has accomplished? Absolutely. Um, my dad is Mitchell Bogdanowitz, and he has uh, several technical academy awards for, for things he's designed. Um, he was a, well, still is, I shouldn't say was, a color scientist, and he worked at Kodak for many years. Um, he's one of the guys that was on a team for designing film stocks and doing R&D on different types of film stocks, and also dealing with any kind of issues with filtration, he was one of the experts that people used to call if you had a problem on set with different lighting or filtration or cameras. So, so I've got a lot of uh, history with him. There's also my grandfather, his father, which was also in the industry. Um, he used to, he was more, he was as, as, uh, Haskell Wexler once told me was a crazy genius and would, um, basically design cameras or basically retrofit lenses, retrofit things to be able to be used for what the cinematographer needed. So if you needed a camera turned into handheld or you needed a certain lens that could be fit onto a different camera, my grandfather could machine it. Um, so, so he did many things, but that's one of the things he used to do too, back for the industry. So it's my grandfather and my father, um, both kind of have that lineage. And I know that you have a sister who is a colorist as well. I do. Family business. Um, (laughs) and my brother actually too, I don't want to interrupt. My brother is a, uh, one of the lead color scientists over at KinoFlow designing LED lighting systems. It's very funny because I could I could imagine being a child in your family being like, you know what, I really just want to be a doctor. And, you know, <laughs> what? You insane? No. Um, <laughs> so when you were a kid, how did that influence you? How did you see the world differently because you were so aware of color and reflections and, and all of that? Oh, I um, actually was super into photography as a kid. Um, uh, when I was 10, I had an old Alpa camera that I used to basically shoot black and white. I used to go out all around. We lived on a farm. I used to go out and find all these little, I'd have all different lenses that I tried to add fisheye lenses and macro and all different types of lenses that I would try in this old Alpa. And I would go out and shoot, just shoot tons of uh, photos and I would develop my own film. So I had my own dark room about when I was 10. So it was a little bit of a foreshadowing me sitting in dark rooms for the rest of my life. But, um, you know, I would spend all weekend developing, developing film and printing it. I had my own enlarger and um, learned how to develop. It was mainly black and white that I did. The color stuff was a little bit more intricate. I did have color chemicals and stuff, but mainly I did black and white. And um, so my father also has a photography background. 
So he taught me all of that, how to develop and print. And um, so that actually was the basis of my love for images and learning how to frame, learning, um, ironically enough, it was all black and white. So it was a lot of contrast. I played with different filtration, changing contrast of my prints and that kind of thing. So that magic of watching that image appear under the red light was the beginning of my passion for all of that. I'm also a painter. So I used to draw and paint all the time. That was one of my, uh, still is one of my passions. So, so just the um, drive and the love for beautiful images and how to create them has always been in my blood. And, and, you know, my father having more of the technical side, you know, I'd see him, you know, working on, on his computer late into the evening. And, um, I would always ask him, what are you doing? What's going on? And, you know, he would describe film stocks and, you know, why colors look different on this film stock versus that. And that also became, I was very aware at a very young age, uh, just by experience with developing my own film and seeing his experience with film stock and how he designed things and what he paid attention to all of that. Just, I just grew up with that. So I think that's a pretty big influence to what I do now. Absolutely. So yeah. was there any, um, doubt that this was going to be your career path or did you even, did you know at the time when you were young that, you know, there was a job as a colorist and that you could go and tell stories with color. So how, how did you, how did you get to where you are now? I guess. Well, that's a good question too, because my job didn't really exist the way it is now. Um, so when I turned 18, my father took me, he was coming out to California at this time. I'm from upstate New York. So I was living in Rochester sure. and, um, my dad was coming out to San Diego for an ACVL meeting, which was basically, um, a technology kind of, of meeting. I don't know if they even exist anymore, but it was the industry professionals who were more technical getting together, talking about film and that kind of thing. So, um, he decided to bring me with him since it was my birthday. So I came out to San Diego with my dad and was kind of a fly on the wall uh, at the ACVL meeting with all of these industry giants at the time. And um, I remember somebody coming up to me saying, oh, what are you interested in, in doing, you know, in, in college and everything? I said, well, I really love art. I'm a painter and photography, but I also like to know how things work. So I was actually studying physics as well at the time. And so they said, oh, technical and art, that's like a perfect combination for a colorist. And I'm like, oh, what's a colorist, right? And so they started describing to me what it is. And um, at the time in Rochester, New York, Kyle Elvitt, who is, was my mentor, um, was a colorist in, in New York in the R&D division of, uh, of Kodak. So they said, well, you know, you should talk to Kyle. So I did, I talked to Kyle and I asked him some questions. <clears throat> Excuse me. I asked Kyle some questions and, um, and he said, you know, oh, this is how it works. We put film on the telecine and then I color. Sure. Anyway, that summer there was an internship open. I applied and I got the internship. So I ended up working very closely and asking many, many more questions <laughs> to Kyle about how things work. And I got so much experience there working on the, at the time it was a spirit. Um, we had a spirit scanner. We had also an old, um, rank. And then we had a Pogel connected to the rank. We had a Da Vinci 888 
connected to the spirit, all the old stuff. And so I got one-on-one hands-on experience. So Kyle would let me like kind of, he'd work and I'd have to make a list of questions and then I'd ask him questions. And, and then I would go through and spend a lot of extra time on my own. Um, after he was done, I would spend hours and hours learning how to figure out how did he do that? You know, how did this work? Why didn't it work that way for me? And it worked so easy for him kind of (laughs) just started trying to figure it out. And, um, so I did that internship for a few years while I was finishing college And then um, I went to art school in Italy and for a semester I lived in Siena um, and studied architecture and painting there. Yeah. And so while I was there, I I lived there for about eight months. It was a little over a semester and um, just was so inspired by being surrounded by so much art and such a beautiful place. And then I got a call asking if, um, if I would come to LA because I need somebody with my experience. Cause I also was doing some Perl scripting. I was doing, um, I knew all the machinery. I knew, uh, how to run things, uh, to be able to move data around and also run the film. So they needed somebody with my experience out in California at Cinesite, which was the sister company of Kodak. And, um, I, so I came out to, after I finished uh, college, pretty quickly came right out to California to be the assistant on one of the first DIs really, which was, Oh brother, where art thou? And so, (laughs) um, basically came straight out of college and was sitting next to the Coen brothers and Roger Deakins and learning from them and observing and observing Julius Freed was the colorist on that movie. So I was basically loading film and, and scanning the film. It was all original cut negative. We had up on the telecine at the time. So, uh, you know, I was able to observe how he was doing everything and, and learn that. And then what happened is he got, he was ill for a little bit. And so I actually took over a little stint, um, basically continuing the project and got to sit with Roger Deakins and color a little bit on that, which was incredible. But um, anyway, we went ahead and uh, during that whole process of O Brother, learned a lot about building the workflow for a DI. There was not really anything set at that time. Uh, I actually did. So I remember back then when DI was first being talked about and everybody sort of had a different definition for what a DI was. Yes. So that must have been a little challenging as well. So because filmmakers must have been like, well, I want I want the flexibility of a DI. I want more control over over my picture. What is a DI? I mean, so how did how did that work? Yes, and and it was a very controversial subject actually too because um, there were a lot of people who were very worried about it because you could actually screw up the image in a big way. You know, you now you're not limited to <clears throat> red, green, blue, bright or darker. Now you have contrast, saturation, power windows. How is that going to translate to film was a big question. So actually my father and I um, designed, uh, he really designed a lookup table. I did really all of the reading of all of the <laughs> the technical thousands of color patches that I gave him data for, but um, designed a lookup table that actually would allow it to look like what we were coloring from the DI suite to film. So that was a very different process depending on what color, what company you went to, because depending on the color science, depending on 
so many different factors, right? How did you scan it? How did you color it? How are you viewing it? How do you put it to film? How do you track that? So there was a lot of different pieces to that puzzle <clears throat> that we worked through for Oh Brother and kind of designed that workflow and it was continually improving. But I do remember a lot of people at that time saying that DI was DI was more of a, a fad. It wasn't going to last because, you know, it was so expensive. It was very boutique <clears throat> at the time. So now obviously it's mainstream, but there was a lot of growing pains getting to that point. And everybody's idea of what a DI was, was different because you could use it in so many different ways. And that was now all of a sudden the restrictions of the lab are gone. And so how do you use this? Right. Oh, brother used it in a very creative way where we took all of the greens and um, turned them to like a gold color. And that really was way ahead of its time, in my opinion. So um, then we started doing partial DIs to be able to create flashback looks or more extreme looks that you would traditionally do in a telecine. And, <clears throat> and we got very good about getting getting the color translation to go from whether it be on a monitor or a projector at first oh brother was actually colored on a monitor which is crazy to think now but you know um getting that color circle to to close was a very difficult task so every company did it differently so some people would have great experiences like oh we went to whatever company and it worked out great and it came out perfect. Other people go to other companies and it was like, oh my gosh, what a nightmare. We spent so many so many hours in the DI and it didn't look anything like it on the film. So there was a lot of misinformation. There was a lot of different experiences because it wasn't a very cohesive process within the industry yet, right? So, um, you know, seeing that attitude change was really interesting to me. And then also a lot of the cinematographers, some cinematographers were, or, or directors were really open to the process. Other people were very not open to the process because you do have so much, many more tools and a lot more flexibility, which is a good thing, but also can be a bad thing, right? So they feel so, like they're losing, they're losing control over their exactly. vision. Yeah, exactly. Which is also still a narrative that happens now, but not as much. But it's, it really was strong. Um, it was a very, very strong narrative early on. You're listening to Post Perspectives Meet the Artist podcast, sponsored by Puget Systems. It's, it's amazing because you come from the origins of, of the color grade and DI. So you know the processes that are being used today. You know why they're being used. So... It must be very, very weird for someone that's just coming on as a colorist now and knows, you know, not to mean what they know, but they right. were not involved in that evolution of it. So it must be sort of a different view. Yes. I mean, have yes. you heard from people? Have they asked you why we're doing this? Absolutely. It's, it's really interesting because I approach color from, <clears throat> I think because of all that experience, I look at things very technically. Like I want to make sure that I have all of my technical pieces in a row and I'm very particular about that because I know that when all of the technical um, things stack up, then everything else is going to be easier and I'll have a stronger foundation to work from. I have had to explain that. Like I do mentor a lot of people. Um, and so when I'm teaching that, I always say, okay, you, in my 
what I teach is make sure you have a strong foundation technically. Make sure your lookup table is strong. Make sure the workflow is correct. Make sure the color space is, is mapped correctly because if you don't get all of these things in line, then it's going to be more difficult for you to color. And I think that experience comes from working in designing and watching the evolution of, of this whole process. Because if you didn't have your technical ducks in a row, it just would fall apart even more so than it would now. Because if you had a lookup table in the wrong place or you had the wrong, you know, the viewing lookup table or the projector wasn't set right or something in the chain, one little piece of the chain could be off. And then you could get it back on film, which all the, by the way, was very expensive, right? Because you were using actual film stock. So if I make a mistake with, with where things go, it's exponential if you're going out to film, right? Because yeah. you're using film stock. Then you've got everybody looking at it in a theater and they're like, oh my gosh, what happened? You know? And, and then, you know, people lose confidence very quickly. So my, I still approach it the same way when I'm running a DI now. I make sure and I'm very strict about the technical stuff. And, um, and that's what I like to, to instill upon people who I'm teaching. And I do tell them why, you know, <laughs> maybe it's a little PTSD from getting burned too many times, but it's definitely shaped how I do it. Absolutely. And what's now the beauty of the DI is, and we recently for Post Perspective interviewed the director for John Wick uh, chapter four, who I know you worked on, uh, this was your third film, I believe. And he talked about getting you involved, you know, way early and how you, I think he said you created a lot just from the conversations that you guys had. So not only talk about John Wick, but also talk about the control and what you can show the DP and the director based on the look early on from the very beginning. Absolutely. And this is also something I've learned over the years is that the look of the dailies or the look when you're shooting, right, is a communication tool. If you get that look correct early on, then everybody is seeing the same thing, right? So you've got the director, the cinematographer, visual effects team, producers, the whole world, right? That has been judging and looking at this image will all be on the same page. So, so yeah, so Chad and I have worked together. I really enjoy working with Chad. He's one of the directors that I work with very closely in DI. He really enjoys the process. I think, you know, he's very involved and <clears throat> he's got a very strong vision. He, it's important to him to have really strong, beautiful images for his movies. And, and I love that challenge. I love being able to, to take it up a notch, you know, and do, do, do something a little bit different and to support the story. Right. And so since John Wick is a story, it is somewhat, you know, in a way a fantasy, it's very, you know, a world, it's a world, it's his own world. So it's really fun to be able to create a look for that world. And yes, he, I, a lot of times with my movies, I will create a look of table early on before they end up shooting. And then that way they have it on set and you can actually light to it. You can look at it. You can say, okay, yeah, this is working <clears throat> and you can digest it from an earlier place rather than just getting to the very, very final end of the DI and then discovering things then. So I've done it for quite a few, for, uh, for Chad, for sure. Um, was able to see exactly what he's going to be getting, you know? And then of course we took it to another level at the end anyway, 
um, and for Dan as well, who was shooting, who's brilliant, um, that, that <clears throat> allowed them both to have that cohesive feel. Also, you know, I went into the editorial early on, he would show me things, he'd show me, okay, uh, is this going to be a problem in the DI or can we do this or what can we do in visual effects versus what can we do in the DI? You know, that kind of thing is really helpful to have me on board early on because it helps mm -hmm. define where does my job end and the visual effects take over when there's always a bit of a handshaking there, right? So um, getting that conversation started early is also really great. And I think Chad is really great about that, getting everybody involved right from the very beginning and, and making sure, okay, what can we do? He likes to know what exactly are we working with here? What, what do I, do I have to go do something over or can we do it the way I want it? Am I going to get exactly what I want? And, right. um, so that bringing me in early really, really helps with all of those conversations. And, um, it's become over the years, this is something interesting that that wasn't the normal process for a very long time. <clears throat> Most of the time people would just shoot with a basic lookup table out of the camera and then bring it to me and discover the look, which politically could be very difficult because, you know, whether it's better or worse, it doesn't even matter. People are getting used to the look of their movie, right? They're testing the movie, they're editing the movie, um, the producers see the movie, director, ed everybody on, on board is, is looking at that. And so then when you finally get to the DI and maybe the cinematographer had a different vision to help tell the story and we change it, then at that point, it's got to be kind of a re it's, it's, it's a reframing of what their movie is going to be all of a sudden. Yeah. And sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, but when you have this lookup table now, which is, this is becoming more popular, this is a lookup table, which is like basically picking your film stock for your movie, but it's just, you have more variables, right? Because I can pretty much do anything, but you know, you can create that look early on. When you're shooting, you see it on the monitors on set. You see it in dailies. Visual effects gets that lookup table so they can create their their worlds within that color space. And it's a great communication tool. And then it allows us at the very final end of the DI, like we did for John Wick, we did so many details. It really allowed us to do all the refining details, continually making it better, um, help refine the image, help refine the visual effects, help refine, um, you know, the storytelling. It, he, one thing that he pointed out was the cherry blossoms and getting the natural look of the cherry blossoms, but also being able to adjust the colors around that, um, which he was saying that you probably couldn't have done any other way. It was so, so he, he, that was one scene that he pointed to that, that you were able to sort of uh, enhance the, enhance the drama and the color and, and all of that. And, um, but before I let you go, if you could just, what are some best practices in terms of working with a DP and a director? Everybody has a different language, right? So how do you know that their description is what you're hearing? I mean, do you prefer a lookbook? Do you prefer, um, you know, films, to look at, you're from a fine art background. Is it is it fine art? What do you prefer? Honestly, anything because everybody communicates different, and everybody has a, a vision. Like you could tell me, I want it desaturated, 
and your version of what desaturated means it will be totally different from the next person so i always kind of joke that part of my job is to be a psychologist and get inside of people's heads <laughs> and um, understand what they mean and understand their aesthetic and understand what they love so i do we do reference a lot of different things um like chad we referenced a little bit of work on why on john wick to be able to get those color separation and um to be able to get you know rich colors still filming and so i understand what he means you know when he says i want it red you know <laughs> and i wanted this guy and just like the cherry blossoms he wanted those beautiful light, beautiful t uh, tones of the cherry blossoms, but still wanted strong colors and needed the greens. We needed the blues to offset those. And I always say that you need, you know, to make something feel brighter, you need something else to be darker because we only have so much room on, an, on a projector of brightness. So if you want it feeling brighter and shinier, bring something else down. So we all talk about different techniques and I get in people's heads and understand what do they mean? Do they mean contrast? Do they mean color contrast? Do they mean color separation? And by examples, whether it be lookbooks, other movies they've loved, styles they've loved, paintings they love, all of those things help me understand what, what they see. Very cool. Jill, thank you very much for, for joining us. Thank you for listening to Post Perspectives Meet the Artist podcast, sponsored by Puget Systems. For more information, please visit PugetSystems.com.